From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Whether in high school biology class or through ads for finding your ancestry, most people have heard of DNA. Less well-known is RNA and the short segments of RNA called microRNA. MicroRNA was discovered in the 1990s, opening up vast possibilities for scientific research and new medical tests and treatments. To explain microRNA, we're fortunate to have with us in the studio one of the world's foremost experts on the topic, Dr. Victor Ambrose. He's the Silverman Professor of Natural Sciences at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, where he runs a molecular medicine laboratory. Dr. Ambrose has received numerous prestigious awards, and he's been mentioned as a contender for a Nobel Prize. He and his colleagues are credited as the first to identify microRNA. He's in Syracuse to deliver a lecture to upstate researchers, and he agreed to speak with HealthLink on Air to explain in simple terms what microRNA is and why it's important. Thank you for being here, Dr. Ambrose. I appreciate it. Glad to be it. here. Thank you. So there's a, a lot of scientific terms here. Can we start by reviewing what DNA is and what it does? Yeah, DNA is the genetic material. It's a, a, a polymer of simple components, and those components are arranged in a sequence. Um, and so um, many of your listeners may have heard of DNA sequencing and genome sequencing, and this is a way of determining the sequence of those uh, individual components in the DNA. Um, and those, uh, that sequence um, is basically the blueprint for... Um, how the cell assembles its, um, its uh, it components, which are proteins and RNA molecules. Um, and those proteins and RNA molecules essentially do the work of the cells and allow cells to divide and assemble into tissues and develop into an animal or a plant. So it's the information that defines everything that the, uh, the organism becomes, whether it's a single-celled organism or a multi-celled organism like ourselves. So how, it, how is RNA related to DNA? Well, the RNA is the, is the copy of DNA. So DNA you can think of as the repository of the information. And all you need to do with DNA is to replicate it every time you divide a cell to make a new cell. And so that each of the progeny cells has the same information. Also, DNA is a substrate for the machinery of the cell that can read that sequence and copy the sequence into a sequence of a similar molecule called RNA. So RNA and DNA are very similar in structure, and the RNA is actually a, a copy of, the D, of a section of the DNA. And we often think of that RNA as uh, a copy of a gene, or the, it can be, we refer to it as the gene product, also, the messenger RNA, if it's the RNA, is going to uh, now be then uh, translated into a protein sequence by the cell. So what is microRNA then? Well, microRNA are called micro because they're really smaller than all the RNA molecules that we were uh, familiar with previously. It's important to remember that all RNA molecules are, uh, are polymers, linear polymers of these, um, these components called nucleotides. And there's four different nucleotides in RNA, just like there are four different nucleotides in, in DNA, so you can make the copy. And most messenger RNAs that are actually the information from a gene that is making a protein would be hundreds or often even thousands of uh, nucleotides long because the protein may have um, you know, as many as 100 or 200 or more amino acids. But microRNAs don't... 
code proteins. They come from genes that have evolved to regulate other genes by making this RNA molecule that actually matches up to other genes, other mRNAs, and can regulate the uh, activity of those M other mRNAs. And a short piece of about 20 or 21 um, you know, uh, bases long or nucleotides long um, is sufficient. And uh, evolution has crafted these small RNAs to be about that long. Um, and they are um, functioning uh, within cells to regulate the expression of proteins from other genes uh, that make conventional messenger RNAs. Huh, interesting. Well, tell me how you and your colleagues discovered microRNA. Were you looking for no, it? No, we were not looking for microRNA. We were studying a, uh, this worm, C. neurobditis elegans, or C. elegans, which is a nematode um, that normally lives in the soil. Um, the largest, its adults are about a millimeter long, um, but it um, normally grows in the soil, but you can you culture it easily in the, on petri dishes in the laboratory. And so it was developed in the 1970s and 1980s as a so-called model organism for uh, animal development and behavior and so forth. And it is particularly suitable for using genetic approaches to pick apart, you know, the huh. components of cells and organisms and and identify the genes that are regulating um, the development of an animal. And amongst the uh, genes that had been identified was a gene called LIN4. And it just had a name because uh, we knew there was a mutation in that gene and that caused the animal to have serious developmental defects, right? And these developmental defects were very interesting because the animal is so small and it's clear, you can see them in the microscope and watch them develop in the microscope and watch all the cells form. And it had been determined by the folks who discovered this mutation that the mutant worms were developing in an abnormal way that was very, very interesting and, and unusual. They, the animal would repeat over and over its juvenile development. And so instead of advancing on to expressing a later developmental programs and adult programs, the animal would grow in size and just repeat larval programs. And so the animal would accumulate extra cells that are normally only made in early larval stages, and they would fail to make cells and even whole tissues that would normally be made at the later stages. So they were a fascinating mutant that was essentially a large larva crawling around on the plate. And so, on your petri dish, so I inherited that, um, a project of studying that mutant when I joined uh, Bob Horvitz's lab at MIT as a postdoc. And then when I started my own laboratory at Harvard um, in the, in the mid-80s, uh, we continued to study that mutant, and um, uh, members of my laboratory, um, uh, Rosalind Lee and Rhonda Feinbaum, uh, identified the DNA sequence that was mutated by that in that mutant. And they identified then, therefore, the, the product of the gene. Um, they initially were, uh, uh, you know, aimed at identifying a protein product, um, but they were able to show that the, that the gene did not encode a protein at all. And in fact, it encoded just this very short RNA of, um, of only 21, 22 nucleotides in length. And this was an unusual kind of, of, of small RNA that hadn't been described before. So, as you can see from the story, we set it out to try to understand an, a very intriguing um, mutant worm mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, and we had available to us uh, this strain of worms that was mutated in this way so that we could employ molecular biology and um, methodology to identify the gene and the gene product. And it was an, an, a new kind of gene product that hadn't been described before. So it was an accidental discovery um, in the context of trying to uh, explore, um, you know, an intriguing developmental defect. We thought we were going to learn about developmental processes only, um, but we happened to learn about all uh, developmental processes, but also um, you know, previously unknown kinds of gene products that, that regulate development. Has, uh, do you believe microRNA has been there all along and mm. just not discovered, or is it something yes. new? <clears throat> it's evolutionarily microRNAs have been the, they've been here for a long time, many hundreds of millions of years. <laughs> so how did it go undetected yeah. for so long? Well, because people we had been studying organisms, um, you know, using genetic approaches that do have microRNAs. Um, you know, humans have microRNAs. All all um, all mammals have microRNAs. Insects have microRNAs. Nematodes and so forth. And folks had been studying, of course, insects such as Drosophila, Melanogaster, for many years. That's a fruit fly. Yeah, fruit fly. Um, but the technology for identifying the products of genes, right, were limited, and mostly because um, we did not have available to us the resource of a genomic sequence. Now, the fact that at the same time that we were doing our studies in the uh, in the mid '80s and early '90s, and coming up with this discovery of microRNAs, at the same time. Um, scientists in England were assembling a resource of genomic uh, data about, uh, for C. elegans, for our organism. Mm. And using those resources as we went along were critical for our being able to identify this unusual kind of um, RNA molecule. In, in retrospect, we believe that uh, the reason why these were missed previously is because of the lack of these genomic resources that... Um, and, um, you know, that uh, we had available. And that was just emerging for us at the time that we were doing our studies. So it was a really convenient convergence for us of, um, of a biological problem that was intriguing. Um, you know, the hard work of uh, Rhonda and Rosalind in the lab and the emerging community resource of genome, um, you know, res- genomic resources that were being assembled for the community by um, by uh, John Sulston and Alan Coulson in, in England. And John Sulston, by the way, is a pioneer scientist in our field, and he recently passed away uh, just l- last week. And so um, it was, it's a, we're mar- as a community, we're marking the passing of a, a, ver- a very important um, scientist for all of us. Wow. Well, interesting. This is HealthLink on Air um, from Upstate Medical University. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Victor Ambrose, one of the world's foremost authorities on microRNA. Well, researchers here at Upstate and, and elsewhere are working on a test that would examine microRNA in someone's saliva to identify mm. autism or concussion early. Um, where do you see future uses of microRNA in medicine or science? Those kinds of applications um, that you mentioned where um, microRNA can be used as essentially as biomarkers for, let's say, pathology and internal pathology or internal trauma that it's hard to otherwise assess um, 
can, it appears from the studies such as those, become um, accessible from a, uh, through a simple you know, saliva or blood test. I'm really excited about those, those applications. And also, um, there's, of course, important applications for uh, microRNA in, in the genetic studies of, uh, of diseases such as autism and others because, um, including cancer, because many of the genes that are uh, important for the, um, for, uh, in the context of these diseases are either regulated by microRNAs or in some cases are encoding microRNAs. So we know that as we move forward with basic studies of basic scientist studies of well, how microRNAs are involved in regulatory mechanisms of normal development and normal physiology, you know, these um, the studies of the genetic basis for diseases are going to converge on that on that fundamental understanding, and I think we'll be able to understand mechanisms better um, and really, you know, tailor uh, therapeutic approaches to the knowledge about mechanism. This seems to me like an exciting time to pursue a career in microbiology. Um, would you recommend it to today's high school students? Yes. Today yeah. is a great time to do science in general, you know, whatever the science is. Um, and biology is amongst those sciences that is, um, biomedical sciences is a, is a area of science that's growing um, rapidly and expanding in opportunity. And what I mean by opportunity is that the opportunity for learning fundamental new biology quickly and efficiently is always improving through technological advances. So technological advances in uh, computers, in uh, imaging, uh, DNA sequencing, um, and other kinds of molecular approaches, uh, including genomic editing. Uh, many of your listeners may be aware of uh, the uh, recent revolution, so to speak, in developing tools or adapting uh, mechanisms that have evolved billions of years ago in, in microbes. We now have adapted them to edit genes in uh, organisms such as um, uh, C. elegans, you know, insects, and human cells, and other kinds of mammalian cells. So those tools of, of, of genome editing allow us to rapidly make, uh, ask questions about the function of parts of genomes and, and address those questions quickly and with great precision. So I would encourage anybody who's interested in, in science to um, you know, put uh, biology and biomedical sciences high on their list of, uh, of uh, potential you know, occupations and encourage folks to list, look past, let's say, um, you know, any doubts or uh, concerns that people may try to, to instill in them and um, look forward with confidence because many of the, because all of us who are presently involved in biomedical science are incredibly excited about the future. We know that um, opportunities are, are expanding um, in ways that uh, we never, never uh, anticipated even, even a few years ago. Wow. Well, I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for being here. Hey, thank you. My guest has been Dr. Victor Ambrose from the University of Massachusetts Medical School, who's visiting Syracuse for a lecture at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.